0: You are listening to the Horse Radio Network, part of the Equine Network family. You're listening to the Stall and Stable Show, ideas for happy horsekeeping.
1: The topic of value in a boarding barn has been coming up a lot lately. What makes a place worth a certain amount? And outside of the cost to the proprietor, what should influence what one charges for board? I mean, beauty's in the eye of the beholder, of course. But there are certain definable features that make boarding facilities attractive to horse owners. In this episode, I talk with pro rider, three-star eventer, and business owner, Bevan O'Reilly-Dugan, proprietor of O'Reilly Equestrian in Southern Vermont. Bevan and I discuss the features of boarding barns that provide the most value. That's sometimes a moving target. It's an interesting discussion, so listen in. This is episode 104 of the Stall and Stable Show, brought to you by American Stalls. Welcome back, listeners. Today is Wednesday, October 5th, 2022. I'm your host, Helena Harris. I hope you'll support our show by supporting our sponsors. In addition to American Stalls, I'm grateful for the support of Tangent Materials, makers of tangent fencing. Horse stall equipment is one of the largest investments that you'll make for your horse's safety and comfort. This is why American Stalls focuses on equipment that fits more than just the inside of your barn. Their mission is to design products that fit your farm, your design goals, and your lifestyle. And it all has to stand the test of time. You know what they say, do it right or do it over. Well, no one in the horse world has the time or the money to do things over so doing it right the first time means doing it with American Stalls. To learn all about their extensive selection of fine stall equipment, visit them online at AmericanStalls.com or follow them on Facebook and Instagram, where you'll find lots of great photos of their products. Does your farm have an indoor arena? Are trails accessible from the property? Is there a resident trainer around? If so, what are his or her credentials? How does the availability of an indoor affect board rate? And how might a mediocre indoor compare to the value of a fabulous outdoor? What about grass turnout versus no grass turnout? These are all questions that horse owners ask themselves when shopping for a boarding facility, among other things. Harkening back to my travels this summer, I can tell you some of the most valuable features I found in barns from East Coast to West Coast. Lots of turnout time, quality hay that never runs out, um, Clarabelle never looked better after her summer in Maine this year, attentive and knowledgeable staff, and business owners that are both passionate and open-minded about what they do. And those are just to name a few. Today, I'm happy to welcome Bevan Dugan to the show. Bevan is not only a talented, experienced, and thoughtful rider and competitor, she is a professional in every sense of the word. She's invested smartly in her barn and her business, which means happy horses and riders. And that's pretty much what we're all looking for, isn't it? Hi, Bevan, and welcome to Stall and Stable.
0: Hi. Good
1: to be here. So, um, listeners, Bevan and I worked together uh, outside of this podcast, and uh, she had sent me an email with come up kind of ideas about, you know, the things we think about when we're like doing stalls or on the tractor and, you know, our our wheels start turning. And the question she posed to me was, what makes a, a place, a farm, worth a certain amount of money? And and what kinds of uh, features, what, what influences the rate that we charge for board or training board? And so as I sat with that question and started thinking about it, I was like, there are hundreds of variables that can affect the value of one's services. So Bevan and I are going to talk a little bit about that. This is just off the cuff kind of things that we're thinking about. And
0: Well, I know for myself and a number of my friends and colleagues, um, recently with diesel being expensive and so many prices increasing, we've all been kind of taking a look at our businesses and our bottom lines, and figuring things out. And as I've been doing that, I, you know, I've done some research and looked at other farms and what other facilities charge. And there's a certain amount, of course, that isn't at all arbitrary. It's, you know, this is what the hay and the shavings and the mortgage and whatever add up to. But then there's also this sort of strange amount that doesn't always seem to add up. And it goes in both directions. I've talked to a couple of people who charge really much less than they need to, and are losing money, because they don't feel they are able to charge what they should. And then on the other end, there are a couple of facilities, and I have found what they have charged. And I thought, wow, that seems like a lot for that place. So it's just made me think like, what is worth what? Like what does having a tiny indoor with not very good footing that's really dusty in the winter do to the value of a place versus a place maybe with no indoor in the winter? Or the availability of quality pasture turnout versus two hours out of the day turnout in a small dirt paddock kind of thing. So it it just has my wheels turning because I think that's another aspect of the whole decision on what do we charge that doesn't always completely get factored in.
1: Yes. I want to go back to the first thing that you talked about, which was the amount that we have to charge, the baseline. We call that the break-even amount. And Mm -hmm. there's a simple math problem that lets us figure out what that break-even number is. I would say 90% of farm owners don't ever do that math. So they really don't right. have a solid understanding of what their basic operating costs are and how much they need to charge and board just to cover that. Right? Mm-hmm. That's not even profit.
0: Um, and I can say that sometimes when I sit down to do that for myself, I get halfway into the process and I stop and I think, "Ooh, this is getting too depressing. I need a break. <laughs> and I don't I mean, I do know, but that's part of the reality. I think when you start to realize That break-even number is starting to quickly approach what you're charging, and you haven't added all of the expenses in yet, and you think, I don't know if I can charge more. It's a tough moment to face. (laughs) It is, and it's a moving target.
1: And I think that's such a valid point that when you do sit down and look at those numbers, it can be depressing. And I think that's why most people don't do it. We don't want to know how much we're spending on our horses. (laughs) Um, Right. But that eventually comes back to haunt us. So we do have to eat the frog, as the saying goes, and look at those numbers. Because that tells us where our cash flow, where, our, where we have cash leakages. So right. what are we spending to run our farm? And um, where can we tighten that up? There's a lot that we can do to reduce that number, to reduce the right. baseline operating expenses so, that what we need to charge or what we think we can charge actually helps us earn a living. So, there's two sides to that. Are we charging the right thing? And are we operating as financially efficiently as we can? So, when you list out your expenses on a spreadsheet, you look at something like maybe your truck payment, or uh, what are you spending on gas or um, facilities maintenance? And then you go, hey, you know what? I really don't need to spend that much on lawn mowing (laughs) or labor. You know, I just put out an episode that talked about how to save on labor costs by just adjusting the fencing in your turnout. So Mm -hmm. your staff isn't spending all this extra time turning horses in and out several times a day. So that's the one side. That's the baseline. Right. I think what you're talking about is what creates value in a farm.
0: Right, right. I think adding to that baseline conversation, I mean, there are the things that to me are non-negotiables, like, you know, how can we tighten it up? Well, you know, maybe I could feed something that doesn't cost so much. But for me, I'm not willing to do that because that's, to me, part of the value I offer to people is the quality of the service I provide, but also the feed that I use, my hay supplier, those kinds of things. Um, So there can be kind of that funny wiggle room on tightening it up in a way that's in line with the values of how the business is run. And for sure, I think that is part of the value is being at a facility that is run in a way that doesn't compromise on the things that really are important. And I suppose everybody's idea of what's really important is probably a little bit different. But um, I think that's another side for sure, is being able to improve efficiencies. Absolutely. I ran a really big facility for a long time and spent a lot of my mental energy being as efficient as we could. But at the same time, you know, things have to stay safe. The horses have to get what they need. Absolutely, no matter what.
1: Agreed. And, and I love that there are non-negotiables. So when you're looking at your list of expenses, you can flag those things. You can literally mark them with a star that says, this item is worth the expense, the added expense, because it creates the kind of value for the kind of customer I want. Right. So that's another question. What kind of customer do I want? One of the first questions right. you asked me was, let's talk about you know, the availability of an indoor how does it, having an indoor affect your board rate? Well, for most of us, having an indoor is a great asset. Um, but some people might not need an indoor. Maybe they go down south for the winter or they're fair weather riders and they don't care if it, they don't ride when it rains. So knowing right. who your your client is, your your target client, and what's important to them, that's going to affect the value of your indoor. Or right. grass pasture. If you've got horses who are overweight, or have metabolic issues, that thick lush pasture might not be valuable. Do you have a dirt lot or a sacrifice lot on your farm where that horse can be turned out? Now that's valuable.
0: Right, having the options, I think is part of the value that if this year my horse needs to be out on grass and two years from now, oh gee, we just found out that now things have changed for this horse as he's gotten a little bit older. And do you have a place that's a dry lot or that's completely mowed down? And I think that goes back to the education of the person who owns the facility so that you're not dealing with somebody who just says, well, sorry, we can't do that for you. But somebody that's educated enough to say, I understand, here's what we can do to help you. And certainly, if you don't have the availability of grass at all, then that's that, but you know, just because there's grass on the property, to me, doesn't mean there can't be flexibility to try to do the best you can for a horse that needs something different. I think so often there are ways to be flexible within reason that can take care of, I mean, really any horse on any property, so long as there's a willingness there to, to do it.
1: And, and I want to expand on this, the experience and education of the farm owner. I'd like to come back to the indoor arena discussion. Honestly, Bevan, I think have an entire episode, a, a whole discussion <laughs> in one episode just on the different kinds of indoors and what makes one better than the next. So we're yeah. going to come back to that a little bit later. But the experience and education of the business owner is crucial even if you've got boarders who are well versed in horse care, you really can't beat the experience of someone whose profession it is to to keep horses. How do you feel as a farm owner making decision on behalf of other, you know, someone else's horses and, and their owners? How does that work in your life?
0: So for me, I mean, I right now I have a small kind of boutique operation and the people who are here are largely here because they want my help in all areas, not just having a lesson, but managing their horses. It's something I'm very comfortable with. I've done this forever and have been in enough big facilities that I've seen. I won't say I've seen it all because none of us ever really have, but I've seen a lot, whether it's addressing an emergency or dealing with a horse with some kind of a chronic issue Um, whether it's a behavioral issue under saddle that really has nothing to do with under saddle. Maybe it's the way the horse is being fed or it's a chronic health issue. So because I've been around it so much, I feel very comfortable being able to make decisions. But also, I think the team that I work with, you know, my vets, farriers, um, body workers, etc., that team I've built up over the years, I work with people I'm very comfortable with, um, who I can trust, and they trust me, and we have this rapport, so that really it's it's very rarely that there's a problem we aren't able to solve here on the farm. I mean, certainly, sometimes we have to ship out to see somebody special. But I think that's a huge part of what I offer here. And I do some freelance teaching. I go other places. And it's something that I try to kind of be available for my students with. Like, you know, if there's a management issue, I'm happy to consult on it and help you on it while also being respectful of the barn owner at the barn where they're boarding and understanding the limitations of those facilities, which is, I think, another piece. Um, But the bottom line is that anything to do with training horses also has to do with managing horses. (laughs) And so the more, I think, you know, the more there can be, um, agreement or, um, dialogue between the trainer instructor and the barn owner, which on my property happens to be the same person, the better that makes a huge, huge difference. I think also.
1: I'm so glad that you mentioned this because that is not something I would have ever thought as being, I mean, I, I think it's valuable, but that never really came to the front of my mind, your professional network. We're not just talking about your expertise, but since you've been in the business for so long, you've developed solid relationships with other professionals. So you, you, it is a team effort and I don't Mm -hmm. talk about that a lot because it really hadn't crossed my mind lately. And I think that's a really important point. So listeners, if you are shopping for a new place to board, I know sometimes where you're located, it's, um, your options are limited because who wants to drive more than an hour to go work with their horse or see their horse? But when you're shopping for a boarding facility, you know the, the experience of the farm owner and their relationships, their professional relationships with other providers in the area is just as important as what the inside of a stall looks like. So that's a really great point that you make.
0: And I mean, most of my boarders, the people that I work with here, um, and again, I have a small place now by choice. Um, Most of them come from over an hour away or close to an hour away. And it's not because there are no other choices. part of it is that it's not just about me it's about the network and the people and it's kind of like if you if you happen to be on this farm you have access to the farrier i use and the vet i use and the saddle fitter i use and it's it's sort of a hub and that is really worth something to people and if they can ride one less day a week but they trust in every aspect of their horse's management there is value to that and again It depends on the individual. Some people have to ride six days a week or it'll kill them, you know. It just feels like it's, I can't not ride. But for other people, having four rides a week, but knowing that they just never, ever, ever have to question anything is of value to them.
1: And speaking of reaching for value, we're going to take a quick break to hear about tangent fencing. If you're tired of rotting broken fences, it's time to talk to Tangent. If you want perimeter fencing that's safe and durable with a classic style, it's time to talk to Tangent. If you wanna spend more time with your horses and less time worrying about your farm, it's time to talk to Tangent Materials, makers of premium HDPE lumber that looks just like wood, but without the worry. To learn more, go to stallandstable.com forward slash fencing. So you're the specialist, you're the expert. And while your your um, facility might be smaller, you still have staff, right? Yes. Okay. How do you ensure that your level of care, that your expertise gets passed down to your staff? What kinds of things do you do in order to make sure that that level of care reaches all parts of your farm, uh, including your staff?
0: That's a really good question because it's not always an easy thing. Um, Now I'm lucky because things are small enough. I'm able to be hands-on with people and I see everything because, you know, I'm here when I have a new employee, especially I really keep an eye and try to be very clear with everybody about what the values are here. And often I will say to people, there's lots of ways of doing this task. This is the way we do it here. This is why. It's okay if you don't agree with it. I just ask that you do it anyway. And I'm very happy to explain to you why and answer any questions that you have. Um, Sometimes I'll have an employee that says, Oh, I just thought it would be faster this way. And I'll say, I love the way you're thinking. (laughs) I really appreciate that. But here's why I'd rather do it this slightly less efficient way, but you know, maybe it's a way that's safer. Um, So I think to me, it's mostly about that communication of values, like the safety of the horses come first, the respect to the clients comes second, which they're a very close one and two, but I would rather keep a horse safe than, you know, I feel like it's okay if I bruise somebody's ego for a moment because I take their horse away from them and create a safer situation. But I've found that that's been successful and I ran a much bigger facility with a much bigger staff for a long time. And the same thing, I think just by communicating and leading by example and doing things right and having a clear system and not being afraid to correct people, which doesn't mean screaming and yelling at them, but just correcting and explaining I've found, and maybe I'm lucky because I've had some really, really good people who've worked for me, but things work with, you know, the the machine seems to stay fairly well oiled that way.
1: And I appreciate your humbleness here, but I think that um, it's it's easy enough to attract staff and, and employees and help, uh, but it's not so easy to keep them. And there are two things that you said in, in that discussion that I want to point out. One is that you said, your operation is small enough now where you can see what's going on and you have greater influence over your staff and what happens on a day-to-day basis in the farm. That's really important. And in fact, the episode we just put out, I the, the first thing I mentioned, it was the top 10 tips on how to run a better boarding business. And the first one was cut the number of horses on your property down to 15 or less. <laughs> now yeah, that number, yeah. is it's a little variable. And then we can go into that, you know, it, you can revisit your business model and how to make 15 horses or less profitable, but it saves you so much time and money when the horses are safe and you can provide a level of care personally, yourself, and through your staff that you can't with a bigger, uh, with more horses. So that mm-hmm. was number one that you said. It, it's, it's small enough where you can actually have a greater influence over what happens. And the other thing is that you have an open dialogue with your staff. You respect the fact that someone's trying to maybe be more efficient, you see that they're invested in the process, but you take the time to explain why, you know, what are the pros and cons of their way and your way. And that kind of respect is what fosters, you know, from you to them, is what fosters it in the other direction, from your staff to you. Um, You know, not belittling someone because they made a mistake or maybe because they're trying to take a shortcut. We all want to be more efficient. So I think an open, respectful dialogue is just as important in providing quality service because your staff is now on your team. I mean, there's nothing worse yep. than a miserable than miserable barn help.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I think it's it's so important that people, even if I mean, I shouldn't even say it this way. Even if they're just doing stalls, because it's not just doing stalls. Um, but think the more everybody realizes that they are actually, truly an important part of the equation. And I mean, I'm quite happy to do stalls. I enjoy it. I do a lot of thinking. But unfortunately, if I'm doing a stall, we're not really earning any money. I need to be on a horse. I need to be teaching. So I have to designate that job to somebody else. And Try to make sure too that those people understand. I don't want you to be a drone that just goes along. Like, I want you to notice things. Like, if this horse usually has a pristine stall and today it's torn apart and it looks like the horse has been running laps in their stall all night, I would like to know that. And if this is a horse that usually sucks down both water buckets and today there's only a quarter of one bucket missing. I would like to know that as well. And so the more people realize that their observations matter and that, you know, even if it's something they come to me with and I say, oh, actually, that doesn't really matter, but thank you for telling me. It's amazing the difference it makes in terms of the care for the horses and things that can be noticed. Maybe, maybe it's only by a couple of hours ahead of the horse deciding it has a ache. But just those little bits of extra information can make a huge difference for the horses.
1: Yeah. Have you ever had an employee who was there but maybe didn't really want to be or wasn't motivated? How do you spot someone who you feel is a good fit for your barn?
0: Hmm. Um, I mean, I think often you just kind of get a vibe from somebody. I know right now so many people are having trouble finding help for their barns. And again, I, I don't know how this happens to me, but I feel like just in the moment I'm getting nervous and desperate, somebody appears that just so happens to fit really well. Um, And even recently I had some kind of quick turnover, which rarely happens. Most people seem to stay on with me for a while. And I just had a girl who was trying a couple of different jobs and, decided she wanted to do a little less with the horses and a little more in this other part of her life. So I had that quick turnover and I thought, oh my gosh, I will never replace this girl as quickly as I need to. What am I going to do? And somebody else just kind of fell into my lap. But I'd say in the past, when I've found myself in those situations where I'm kind of desperate, And I have maybe said, oh, I'm just going to hire this person, even though it doesn't feel right. I just need somebody. I have regretted it and not regretted it in any sort of a dangerous way, but just I've realized, oh boy, I knew this. This person wasn't going to be a fit for me. Um, They're not really willing to open their mind to the way I do things. And now I've got to sort this out. So I think there's a huge amount of, Going with your gut, and you know when I when I meet people who are thinking about coming to work for me, um, I, I think you can. There's questions you can ask to kind of glean from somebody where their priorities are and where their motivations are, and if it really feels like they don't want to be there and they just need a paycheck and they really aren't going to notice or care, then you kind of have to go with your gut and maybe pass that person over and wait for the next person. And I've had people come work for me who aren't that experienced, but I've just gotten the, the vibe from them that they're really willing to try. And more often than not, that works out because even though they don't have a ton of, they certainly need to know how to handle a horse, but even if they don't have a ton of other experience, the fact that they're willing to learn sometimes makes it easier because I can just kind of mold them into exactly what I want. I, you know, it's like, Oh, I can teach you my ways. And <laughs> it's so nice that you don't have any <laughs> preconceived notions. More, uh, because, uh, uh. Yeah. Oh, totally. Exactly.
1: <laughs> Come yeah. into my web. Perfect. <laughs> right. So, you know, it's so funny. There's so many different spinoff episodes we can have just on hiring people and how to find someone who's got the right vibe, but willingness Is everything. Everybody's trainable. And again, Mm -hmm. if you're running a smaller operation, you can train that person in the ways, in your ways. That's one of those efficiencies. If you're looking at going back to our initial discussion about your baseline operating expenses, how can you be more efficient? Well, well trained staff, someone who does things the way you do them, that means a lot less mistakes and mistakes cost money. Yada, yada, yada. So that's just another another point in support of a smaller operation, which brings me to the next point that you brought up in talking about the value of one facility over another. You mentioned access to hacking trails versus a smaller, fancy property. Now, you're an eventer. Eventers tend to have a more well-rounded exercise or training program for the horses. And so hacking trails, I think, for any discipline is really, really important for that well-rounded program. Tell me what you're talking about here. Why, why you pointed out access to hacking trails versus a smaller fancy property?
0: Well, to me, it is hugely important and not so much where I live because I'm in southern Vermont. There's space. Um, but a lot of barns that are right outside of a city aren't on as much land. And they might have a gorgeous barn, beautiful stall fronts, fancy tack room, and, you know, an indoor arena and an outdoor arena. And that's it. And so your horse comes out of the stall and goes to one of those two places every day, um, which to me is hard on horses. Where I am now, you know, we're kind of working on putting more and more actual trails in but we have a circuit that goes around the perimeter of the cleared part of our property. Um, and it provides the horses, even though it's not the same as if you could go out for an hour long trail ride where you never cross your path, it gives the horses a mental break. There are hills. We walk up and down them. You know, we can give them variety for their brains, cross training for their bodies So from my perspective, that is really important and valuable. My tack room is quite lovely, I think, but it's not fancy. We don't have couches and fancy countertops and anything like that. So somebody who wants to be able to have that sort of fancy farm might not be happy here, but their horse might be really happy here because it can go out and do the hacking. And I think there can be, I mean, certainly a facility that has both is great. Um, But, you know, I, I think from my perspective, when I was looking at properties, having space was always going to be more important to me than having fancy. And I think that is very much kind of in the eye of the beholder, what's important to a person. But I also think Remembering to factor in what is important to the horse is really, really important. And that's where, for me, it is sort of like, hmm, well, then what's worse more? Because it's obviously expensive to build that fancy tack room. Yes, ma'am. But what does it really provide? And again, I think if you can do it, good for you. <laughs> Who doesn't want that? But there are trade offs a lot of the time. And I think it's being able to sit down and, and really think about what's important. And even though I don't have a European fancy stall front on my horse's stall, he's going to be outside for 12 hours overnight. Gee, maybe that's worth more than that beautiful stall front. Yeah. I, I just think that's another interesting thing to, for people to consider when they're valuing a facility.
1: I've actually been in three, unfortunately, I've, I've boarded at three different barns that placed a high value on how things looked. When a farm owner doesn't truly understand what horses need, convincing them that their fancy lounge and yep. tack room in there. isn't important is so frustrating. And, and I do think that the money that's spent not only to build out those parts of the farm, but to maintain them. Is wasted money, that is money that could go into the farm elsewhere. You know, d- developing hacking trails, let's just say, or safer fencing. So I would actually kind of steer clear of farms that were super fancy. They're going to have a price tag that goes with that. And I think what you're saying is, if you can afford that kind of price tag, go for it. But you're not going to get the same kind of experience in the saddle that you would get with a um, a more humbly designed, laid out farm. And and the difference right. I, is who's designing for the horse and who's designing this property for the human. There's a balance, right? right? We don't want to, um, we have to put the horse first because without them, we, we don't get to do what we enjoy. But we don't want to completely discount the human needs or, you know, those conveniences that make riding our horses possible. But I would stay away from anything that has lots of glitz and glamour and, and shine. Um, it's just it would be, I don't want to say a red flag, but it would be something that I, would make me look a little bit harder at the turnout, at the fencing, at the expertise of the management, et cetera.
0: Right, I agree. It, it's to me, it's not a, it's not a bad thing. It's just making sure you re, you sort of look at the money that's been put into that aspect of the facility. Has it also been put into the other aspect? Because your horse doesn't care about that and. I think at the same time, a facility that might not be as glitzy and fancy should be clean, should be tidy. So it's not that we're talking about going into a a dumpy place that has dirty floors and cobwebs everywhere and, you know, blankets thrown around on the floor. I think for sure, every facility should be neat and tidy and cobweb free and those kinds of things. But it's looking at it more through the eyes of what your horse wants instead of kind of being blinded by the marble countertop in the bathroom.
1: <laughs> there there's um one of the, the country club facilities that I'm familiar with has it it has all the bells and whistles. It was built that way. But the staff that's there, they blow the aisleways. It's a long straight barn, they blow the aisleways every day. But they never rake up the debris at the end of the aisle. Hey, maybe they sweep some rubber mats that are there, but all that debris just sorts, sort of accumulates to the left and the right of the, the entrance. And what happens when that kind of debris just sits? It starts to decay and that mm-hmm. starts to attract flies. And so you've got this big, beautiful barn that's just riddled with flies. No matter what they do, oh. the fly population just gets worse and worse every year. And nobody seems to understand why. Huh, interesting. <laughs> right? You're going into this beautiful place, but you're miserable and your horses are miserable and they're stomping and you're spending gazillions of dollars because your horse's feet are falling apart because they're constantly stomping. Um, yep. So they just, again, that goes back to pretty is as pretty does. How an, a facility is run and the knowledge of the people running it is way more valuable than the features inside the ladies lounge. Um Okay, form versus function, quality versus quantity we We talked a little bit about form versus function, but if you want to expand on that, um, what are you thinking about this phrase because of course it applies to everything that we're talking about
0: Yeah, I think it's I mean very much like what what we were just talking about. Um, I think too, just looking closely at things like the footing that's in the arena and how well it's cared for. I have been to places that have high-end footing, but people who don't know how to maintain that footing. And sometimes the, the really high-end footing is actually really bad when it's not at the right moisture level, when it hasn't been dragged correctly or often enough. So things like that, that when, you, when you're looking at the value of a place It's not just about, oh, wow, look, they have this fancy footing, but asking questions about how do you maintain this? How do you water this? How often do you water? Uh, How often do you drag? Things like that really, really make a difference. Um, I recently invested in very, very good footing for my arena, and I worked with somebody who educated me to a degree that I probably didn't need to have um, on all things to do with footing. And it's fascinating, fascinating um, and so important. And I'm so grateful for it because had I put the money into buying footing and not known what I know from him, it wouldn't have been worth it. So being able to look around at those aspects of a property and Again, the more educated consumer border uh, will know what questions to ask, and and thinking about being able to look and say, oh, you know, I notice, I notice you feed these two different kinds of hay, or I notice there's two different kinds of hay in your storage area. Talk to me about that. Who gets what? Why do you do it that way? Those kinds of questions, so that you're not just observing what's there, but you're asking why it's there, and how does this work, and what does my horse get, those kinds of things will be what really makes the difference in the experience in reality. Yeah. The,
1: the footing, you know, it's funny because I, I was just looking at it. Um, somebody had posted an in-search in search of ad on Facebook, and they were looking for a facility to rent. And she happened to put in, you know, I, I, I'm looking for this, I'm looking for that. I'm looking for something with an arena that has footing that would be supportive of a horse jumping a meter 40. And mm-hmm. I thought that was a really great thing to put in there. This is yeah. a horse owner who knows her horses, who knows the importance of footing, and felt it important enough to put that in the, right in the front of her ad. So this is what she does. She's a Grand Prix show jumper. The footing is very important to her. So, you know, knowing what, what discipline your horse is, what kind of footing is helpful for that discipline. Barrel racers are going to have very different footing needs than show jumpers than dressage right. riders. I can't tell you the amount of research I did before I my arena in. I couldn't afford super fancy footing. But here's what I did learn. You'll get a different answer from every different footing manufacturer. It's just like shopping right. for saddles. Everybody's footing is better than the next guy's footing. And and they will tell you why. So, at the end of the day, You have to make a decision, but it has to be an informed decision based on, so you need to know a little bit about what kind of footing is supportive for the horses in your discipline.
0: And what I did was go to an independent company person who does not sell the footing, but consults with horse shows and engineers footing and measures how footing performs. So that I was able to make an informed choice. And that's another thing that is, again, you go to a farm that has the quote unquote fancy footing and realize it's not actually done in a way that is supportive of the discipline. Like you said, jumping a meter 40, you want to make sure that that horse is going to land on the right thing. And when they're coming down from a big jump and that's a whole other piece of it. I think the the more specific and or the higher the level of the discipline you're in, whether it's show jumping or barrel racing, the more specific the needs of probably not just the footing, but the entire facility for your horse. And again, that's where the education of not just the you know someone who's able to jump a meter 40, but somebody who understands the management that goes into a horse like that they'll want to be looking for certain details throughout the facility that they board at.
1: The good news is that a lot of information is available on the other side of a Google search. There's plenty of articles, there's plenty of research, there are plenty, and, and opinions too, about what, uh, what what works, or at least it helps you form questions. And, and I definitely, 100 million thousand gazillion percent support the idea of talking to an independent consultant. So, Gavin, uh, mm-hmm. I'd love that you did that. From my perspective as a consultant myself, getting the thoughts and opinions of someone who is separate from the sales process is critical to getting an unbiased opinion. And that's, what, that's what's going to keep your horses safe. And, right. and also keep in mind, nothing's perfect. You can lay down a lot of cash for a certain kind of footing, but it's still going to have its pros and cons. And as long as you know what those cons are, you can make accommodations for them. So my footing absolutely has a very specific recipe. But guess what? In a record-breaking drought, such as we had here in Rhode Island this summer, my footing is going to dry out. It's going to get slippery. So you make accommodations for it. Maybe um, I do more hacking, I do more work in the woods than ring work. So you, you just have to be realistic. No footing is going to solve every one of your problems. Um,
0: right, right. And I think another part of that is that Borders understand that nothing's perfect. We are dealing with Mother Nature in this business. And, you know, while every facility owner is going to do their best to work with what they have, there are going to be times that Mother Nature lets us down. This year, the grass has not been great here. And I have a rotation of paddocks. I mean, I'd love to have. More and more and more, but we do rotate and we do rest paddocks. But this summer didn't matter; the grass just didn't grow, <laughs> and so we've fed more hay in the paddocks this summer than ever I have before. Um, but I think too, it's it, it's a two-sided thing that the facility owner realizes, okay, Mother Nature's letting us down. I need to fill in the gaps here, and the boarders realize the same. Mother Nature has let everybody down. The facility owner is doing the best that they can within that. and um, it doesn't matter how fancy a facility is, really. I mean, yes, we there are sprinklers to water arenas, and I have a water cart that I use for mine, and I've been able to keep up with mine this year, but that doesn't work everywhere. and it, I think it's just really, really important that the the border in the situation, isn't afraid to go and ask the question, but understands that sometimes we just have to do the best that we can.
1: Yeah, and I, I respectfully disagree, and maybe I misheard you that, that borders understand that we're fighting Mother Nature. Um, I think that in many cases, borders don't understand what goes on under the hood when you're running a farm like this and what the challenges are to the farm owner in making sure that horses are fed properly when the grass isn't growing or that the footing is maintained. Um, and so what's what becomes important then because you know you've got various uh, levels of, of knowledge and expertise in your borders, again, maintaining an open line of communication, maybe having regular meetings with your borders and it, it could be informal or it could be formal just to say, hey, this is what's going on. these are the things we're working on. Do you have questions? maintaining that open dialogue, helps prevent any resentment that will come out of misinformation or you know lack of information on the border side. It's easy to, to make assumptions. You don't know what you don't know. Yeah, for sure. Okay. Um, we kind of touched on a lot of things, but what I would love for you to do, Bevan, is tell people about your farm, what you do, what you offer, and where they might be able to find you if they're interested in you know, either riding with you, working with you, or learning more.
0: So, my farm is located in Vernon, Vermont. We're the very southeast corner of Vermont, so we border Massachusetts and New Hampshire. Um, And I have a relatively small facility. I have 12 stalls. I do not have an indoor arena. I go south to Aiken in the winter. And funnily enough, today is a rainy day. I generally still ride in the rain and most of my borders will come unless it's sideways raining, but for me, I made the choice to not build an indoor because I really hate the winter, and I never want to have to stay home in the winter and if I don't have an indoor, what else am I going to do? I guess I have to go south, so that's what I do, and everybody comes with me. So the way I do things here is that my barn closes when I leave for the winter and Everyone who's with me here now chooses to join me in Aiken. Either they send their horses or they come with their horses to Aiken. Um, But the policy is you don't have to come to Aiken, but you can't stay here. And I realize that does not work for everybody. So I'm a, a fairly specific operation that way. So I do dressage and event horses here. All of my boarders are here in a full training program. And then I also do ship in lessons. And I do some freelance teaching kind of out and about within an hour and a half of my facility.
1: Bevin, this was a really great discussion. I love having another professional on here. Will you come back sometime and the next time you have these thoughts?
0: Yeah, I'd love to. I mean, it's something I'm always just very, I'm always thinking, and it's a hard business to run, but a wonderful business to be in. And I think the more there is kind of a sharing of understanding between those of us running the businesses and those of us participating in them, the better. Because often I think where the conflict is, it's just because people don't know. And the more of these kinds of opportunities people have to learn what goes into everything, the better.
1: And I think the boarding model is going to shift as we learn about what's better and safer for horses. Things that we didn't know 10 or 20 years ago, we know now, and that's changing the way we design our barns, the way we run our businesses, and the way we take care of our horses. So this conversation is just one of many that supports that shift. So thank you, Bevan, for joining me. I really appreciate you sharing your insights. My pleasure. Thank you. Well, this was a long discussion, but one that was well worth it. I hope that you enjoyed it. I hope you learned something from it. And if you have questions, please feel free to reach out to me. For details about what we talked about and contact information for O'Reilly Equestrian, just go to episode 104 show notes at stallandstable.com. If you are an equine professional and you need help running your business, feel free to give me a call, send me an email, or just book an appointment at stallandstable.com. I'm available for hourly consulting. Remote or on farm. If you'd like me to pay a visit to your farm, I can do that too. Likewise, if you are a private farm owner or you're looking to build a barn for the first time, bring your horses home, and you'd like some advice on how to do it right, I have appointments available for that as well. Again, just go to stallandstaple.com and click on the services link. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in once again. I do appreciate your support, and I hope that you will support our sponsors. Thank you to American Stalls and Tangent Materials. That's going to be a wrap for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it.